This is Michael Winship's lecture given at Rare Book School on Monday, 5 June 2006. Well, thank you, Terry. Thank you for everything. It's uh, been a privilege to be, have been part of Rare Book School every year since its beginning. And it's also been fun. Uh, the announcement for this lecture should have contained a printed warning. Caution contains serious bibliographical material. Main deuce, boredom, or somnance. I've tried to alleviate these effects by keeping this personal and using an informal tone. If that fails, at least you've got something to read. <laughs> It was this past February that Terry Bellinger announced to me that the Rare Book School had recently acquired its 100th copy of John Greenleaf Whittier's Tent on the Beach, and asked if I would be willing to deliver this lecture to celebrate this event. As I'm responsible for the origins of this collection, I felt that I could not decline. In the early 1980s, neither Terry and I can remember which year, but Maybe, I think maybe 86, actually, I donated my personal collection. Terry, until this evening, insisted it was nine, but I remembered it as 13. I think that's probably right. We'll work it out. Of Tent on the Beach to Rare Book School. And to hear Terry tell it, at least, I initiated the school's habit of collecting multiple copies of a number of works, both American and British, for use in the classroom and for exhibition. If you want to see the fruits of this kind of labor, I advise you to take a tour of the Rotunda in company of Barbara here, who uh, knows more about that collection than anybody. It's a collection of editions of Jane Eyre. Um, I should hasten to add, as Terry just pointed out, that the school's 100 copies of Tent on the Beach are chiefly the work of Vince Golden, who over many years has been indefatigable adding to the valuable resources here at the book school. But never mind, I offer this talk as a celebration and as explanation, if not justification, for this remarkable collection. First, something about Tent on the Beach. I suspect that I may be among the very few presently among the living who have actually read it. <laughs> And nor can I enthusiastically suggest that you rush out to add it to your must-read list. <laughs> Written by the popular Quaker and abolitionist poet, John Brainley Whittier, Tent on the Beach, a slim volume of 172 pages, appeared in 1869, following by a year Whittier's smash hit, Snowbound, a text that I believe still is still worth reading. The title poem, Tent on the Beach, fills 107 pages and recounts a hot summer evening spent by three 19th century American poets, Whittier, also known as The Reader, James T. Fields, The Man of Books, and Bayard Taylor, The Traveler, who were camping on Hampton Beach in southern New Hampshire, presumably as Whittier's guests. In the course of the evening, they are visited by a mysterious lady who is also escaping the heat at Oceanside. As a group, 
they entertain themselves by reciting a series of ballad-like poems written in a variety of meters and verse forms, many of which are based on local lore. These are embedded in the longer framing text. The result is a poetic tour de force, perhaps, and I'm tempted to give you a sample. But I fear that this is not the stuff that reflects our modern poetic sensibilities. The rest of the volume contains a collection of miscellaneous poems. Five, 24 pages, are grouped as national lyrics and celebrate the end of the Civil War, a topic that is mysteriously absent from Snowbound, which is notable for the collective amnesia that it represents of that central traumatic event in American life in the 19th century and eight further poems of 36 pages that are grouped as occasional poems. That means actually that they were written for an occasion, for an opening or for uh, some kind of dedication. I confess that I am somewhat at a loss to explain the work's popularity when it was published in 1867. It was likely a carryover from Snowbound but popular it certainly was. A first printing, a large one of 6,000 copies, was published on the 14th of February, 1867. Valentine's Day, I just noticed that. A second printing of 3,058 copies was finished a week later. 9,000 copies in a week. Uh, in March, there were five further separate printings a total of 8,076 additional copies. Further printings followed in April and August, 3,830 3, copies in all, before the title page date was changed to 1868 for the 10th printing on the 25th of November, 1867. Just under 21,000 copies were produced with the 1867 title page. Extraordinary figures, though nothing, of course, to compare with Uncle Tom's Cabin, which uh, was produced in about 10 times as many copies in a little over a year in the United States, and probably more copies if you could include the card editions. I first came across Down on the Beach in the late 1970s, 1979, I believe, when I was working as an editor of Bibliography of American Literature and preparing the Whittier list for publication. The notes on hand were certainly adequate, gathered by Jacob Blank and his staff, building on information readily available in T. Franklin Currier's estimable Bibliography of Whittier. Nevertheless, protocol required that I verify the information in the notes by examination of copies at hand. In the course of this re-examination, it occurred to me that this was a perfect candidate for further work as a kind of thought experiment that would investigate the nature of bibliographical evidence. Little did I know where this would lead. In order to explain, I need to recall the bibliographical situation at the time. D.F. Mackenzie's pivotal Printers of the Mind essay had appeared 10 years earlier but its implications for bibliographical work had not yet been fully filled work out. The history of the book 
the discipline that currently dominates much of today's bibliographical work, was just emerging. It was only in 1980 that the Boston RBMS conference, Books in History and Society, was held, a conference that in many ways signals the beginning of book history as a scholarly endeavor or a bibliographical endeavor for American scholars. In 1979, the positivist school of analytical bibliography that is associated with the work of Fredson Bowers and his followers still largely predominated. What was at stake in this thought experiment, as I indicated, was the status of bibliographical evidence, especially the orthodoxy that then claimed that the only evidence that counted as primary was that found in physical books themselves. All else was secondary or collateral and not to be trusted, including information taken from publishers and authors' financial records of correspondence. Bowers himself had suggested this view in a 1952 paper entitled Bibliography, Pure Bibliography and Literary Studies, deliver, if you do it, you might as well do the pure kind. <laughs> or, but I bet the impure kind's more fun. <laughs> deliver to the Bibliographical Society of America, where he defines analytical bibliography as the, quote, technical investigation of printing of specific books or of general printing practice based exclusively on the physical, physical evidence of the books themselves. Though wisely, he added, not ignoring, however, what help, helpful correlation may be available with collateral evidence. But for pure bibliography, such collateral evidence, which he associates with historical bibliography, was clearly undervalued, especially if not helpful. A correlation, but not primary, perhaps suspect. This attitude led eventually to such remarkable assertions as that by Ross Atkinson in a fascinating 1980 article published in Studies in Bibliography entitled An Application of Semiotics to the Definition of Bibliography that claims, quote, one must agree that historical bibliography is not, properly speaking, bibliography at all. What exactly Atkinson means by historical bibliography is not entirely clear to me, but he quotes Bauer's characterization of it as ancillary and as the inquiry into the evolution of printing, especially typefounding and papermaking. I don't know why he picked those two things out. Uh, binding, book ownership, and book selling. And he associates it with the German term Geschichte des Buchwesens, history of the book. I suppose that such an understanding of bibliography is possible, or if impoverished, it certainly privileges the physical book over the historical record provided by publishers, printers, and authors' archives. What occurred to me back then was that Tent on the Beach provided an opportunity to test this understanding of bibliographical evidence. I had readily established the work's publishing history, which I outlined earlier, from the surviving archives of its publisher, Tickner and Fields. That's Fields, it's the same Fields as James T. Fields who spent that hot summer night out there entertaining. 
And these were at hand at the Houghton Library, where the bibliography of American literature was then based. There's been little reason to doubt its historical accuracy, as I could confirm the details in two different sets of records. The cost books, a record of production costs, and the sheet stock books, a record of the inventory that was held. It had only taken me a few minutes, 15 at most, to gather the data. Would it be possible, I wondered, to reconstruct this information about Tent on the Beach's publication from a close examination of surviving physical copies? Well, there were several reasons that made Tent on the Beach a near-perfect test case for this thought experiment. On the one hand, its popularity upon publication meant that multiple copies were readily available. At hand already in the Houghton Library, for example, were numerous copies, seven, as I remember, many of which were presentation copies from Whittier himself to the leading New England poets whose collections are now part of the Houghton. Further copies were available in nearby collections, especially as Whittier had for many years been considered an important American poet and had been widely collected. But as this is no longer the case, copies were also readily available and affordable in second-hand bookstores. Accordingly, I began to purchase on my own copies whenever I came across them in my book-buying trips, setting at first an upper limit of $10 a copy, which I was forced to raise to 12 when the immediate supply was exhausted. <laughs> Thus, I gathered my nine or 13 or how many ever <laughs> copies that now form the core of the Rare Book School collection. This easy availability, as Terry said, continues to be true, by the way, as I understand that Vince Golden sets himself a $15 limit on his purchases of the book as he expands the collection. Is that right, Vince? $10. 10 You're down to 10 <laughs> Not at all unreasonable, considering inflation. <laughs> Terry says that you haven't affected the market, but I bet you can flood it. <laughs> 15 with shipping. 15 with shipping. Ah, I got it. I don't remember if I counted tax or not. <laughs> oh, well. Yeah, what's a few pennies for uh, this valuable bibliographical experiment that's underway? Uh, for another, I knew from Currier's bibliography that there were substantial textual differences between copies. This was, of, of course, ancillary knowledge based, uh, but nevertheless, clearly verifiable from examination of the book itself. Indeed, one of the first things that I did was to compile a complete list of textual variants between copies. This was easily done by the use of the Lindstand comparator. These were the days before Halley's comet had crossed the sky. And I initially, initially chose the earliest copy I could find based on dated presentation inscriptions in the Houghton Library collection, and compared it to a later printing that had an 1868 title page. Thus, I came up with a list of textual variants that was considerably longer than that that Courier had provided. This list then gave me a way to group copies according to the textual variants. I would just see what the variant they had and put them in a stack. 
And if you don't believe me, we can all now pick up our hymnals and turn the number, I'll be seated, page 46. And some of you will find that the opening words of the second stanza are, with quick heart glow. Others will find that it's in sight and sound. You can look at your neighbors, too. I hope there's a nice distribution. And some will yet others will find that it's thanks for the fitting word. Are all three of those represented somewhere? Yeah, yeah, good, good. I, I could go on. I've got a list. Actually, I didn't bring them with me, so I'd have to do... I can tell you... I'll, I'll tell you a secret here. All of this work, and one of the things I learned is how to tell if you've got a first printing. All you have to do is turn to page 172 and look at the letter N, that's the first letter in line two. No more forever. And if you've got a perfect N, you've got a first printing. But if the left leg of that N has a little batter in it, it's a later printing. And I'm quite, quite sure that that point it works because I've tried it out on so many copies. Or not, not so many, but that's just, that's free. You can take that home. <laughs> you know, you can wow your friends, you know. I had, of course, uh, to make an assumption about the significance of these groups. Here, I followed the usual practice used in the bibliography and assumed that during the 19th century, a textual variant between copies of books printed from plates, one that could not be attributed to batter anyway, signified that these copies were the product of separate printings. Let me explain. Most American trade books of significance that were produced during that period were printed from stereotype or electrotype plates. And alterations to plates, though certainly possible and not uncommon, involved a substantial effort and were unlikely to occur as stock press corrections. But this is just a general rule based on an assumption, and I do not know that I can prove it in any particular case based on the physical evidence of surviving copies alone. Of course, I was making one further assumption, and that is that the textual changes to plates went in a single direction and that Whittier did not have second thoughts and returned the text and the plates to the original reading. And in all my work in BAL, I only know of one case. It's a, it's a Longfellow song of Hiawatha where that seems to have happened. And it keeps, I keep suppressing it because it doesn't make any sense to me. Why? I mean, he may, well, but it may be. I have another, I've come up with another explanation. I try to explain it away. There is a final fact about the publication of Tent on the Beach that encouraged me because, because of its popularity. It exceeded the ability of a single bindery to prepare copies for sale in timely fashion. So Tickner Fields had copies of the printed sheets set to be bound at two different binderies, Sanborn, Parker, and Fields. This Fields is the brother of the other Fields. Fields is a sort of theme here, and A.F. Lemon. So Parker, SPF, Sandbone, Parker, and Fields, and AFL, A.F. Lemon. This is very unusual, one that is most notably the case for Uncle Tom's Cabin, 
though no one has yet worked out the intricacies of the binding of that remarkable bestseller. For the purposes of my investigation, I made a further assumption then, that each separate printing from the edition was set in its entirety to one firm or the other for binding. This is certainly what Tichter's Fields records suggested, but again, I had no independent confirmation. It is true that surviving copies of Tent on Beach occur in two binding styles. I refer here to the decorative stamping rather than the color of the binding cloth. It occurs in about three or perhaps four colors of cloth, but I think there's no significance to that. The green is the most common. This terracotta sort of follows up. Then there's a kind of purplish lavender. And then beyond that, I give up. Um, but there was on the face of it no reason to associate these styles to one or other bindery exclusively, or to assume that a difference in binding style indicated copies were from different printings. This I proceeded to do, however. The chief difference in the stamping on the binding, one already noted by Courier, was the fact that some copies had a double line stamped rule frame on the sides, while others had a single, thicker line stamped rule. After close examination of multiple copies, I recognized that the publisher's emblem, gold stamped at the foot of the spine, also varied slightly between copies. In fact, the presence of single or double rule frame on the sides always coincided with a specific emblem. The difference in the emblems, if you're interested, this emblem is hanging from a scroll. You see that at the top? And if the scroll, what, some scrolls are straight and some scrolls are sagging from the weight of the emblem. And also, in those that have the sag in it, the two little dangling diamonds are sort of filled in, where the ones where it's straight, those dangling diamonds, you can see I was obsessed, <laughs> are, are empty. Well, I was, I was on the hunt, you know, physical evidence only here, please. And if it has the sagging scroll, it always has, at least in my experience, of course, there may yet still be a purple swan, uh, a thick single rule frame. And if it has the straight scroll, it has the double rule frame. Is anybody going to challenge me to a duel with this? Oh, good. Uh, assuming that the publisher's emblem, the publisher's emblem, is, of course, comes from a brass engraved stamp, was specific to a particular bindery, i.e., that they weren't, you know, trading them off between binding jobs. In other words, I could identify a bindery by having that tool, or that stamp in this case, and that the entirety of each printing was sent to one or the other, I might be able to differentiate between printings on the basis of the binding alone. Again, I'm afraid, relying on um, information from the publisher's record, I was able to check the publisher's emblem that appeared on copies of Tickner and Fields' publications that appeared contemporaneously with Ted on the Beach, and that had, had been 
bound in their entirety by one binary or the other. And, uh, and discovered that they did indeed appear to be specific to a particular binary. In other words, if the records told me that another book, Among the Hills by Whittier, was bound by A.F. Lemon, it always had one of the emblems. I could identify which one A.F. Lemon had, and so on. This, this is, a, I know it's boring. <laughs> this is certainly tenuous territory, and not, and not anything that I can claim is based on primary evidence alone. Although, again, recognizing the assumptions, it is based on an actual examination of surviving copies, at least. So I forged ahead and set forth my thought experiment. Over the course of the next several years, I examined and gathered notes on over 100 copies of Tent on the Beach. My notes were voluminous and detailed. But when I finally sat down to analyze them, I found that I was no further along. While I could divide the numerous copies that I examined into nine groups that might represent the printings, I would not have done so because of my, I only would have done so because of my prior knowledge that this was the number that I believe, based on collateral evidence, had been produced. If I had been told that there were 10 printings, I'm sure I would have made 10 groups. <laughs> the primary evidence simply did not suffice. Nevertheless, I did not regret the time spent on this thought experiment. I had learned a great deal. Let me attempt to summarize some of it. On the one hand, it became increasingly clear that I had neglected to understand that the unit of production was not the book, the discrete volume, but rather the sheet, or rather the side of the sheet that had gone through the press and been impressed by the form of type on the bed. There's no reason that every sheet from a particular press run was perfected with the same form as all others from that original press run. While this seems as if it might be a likely assumption to make, it becomes less certain in the case of popular books produced in printings that proceeded quickly one after another, as was the case with Ted on the Beach. Nor could I determine which pages of text, of course these were actually printing plates, were used to make up each half sheet or how they were imposed in the form. I might assume, as the publisher's production records and normal practice suggested, that the book was printed from a work in turn half sheet imposition or form imposed in that way. But again, this was uncertain based on secondary evidence. Finally, and I believe most importantly, it became quite clear that there was every reason to believe that any particular copy was bound up of sheets, or made more likely half sheets, uh, from different printings, thus multiplying the possible combination of textual readings that appeared in surviving copies. Uh, to discover the production history of Tent on the Beach might be theoretically possible were one to examine a substantial proportions of the copies produced. But let me say, I mean, 100 copies is a lot, but that's nothing compared to 21,000 that were made. Um, but 
somehow it seemed more efficient to reach for the Ouija board, or more usefully, the collateral <laughs> evidence in the publishers and printers' archives. <laughs> this sounds as if my conclusions were all negative, but there were also positive results. For one, it became clear to me that the nature of bibliographical evidence was relative, not absolute. Which evidence we consider primary and which secondary will depend on the questions that we ask. If, for example, our interest is in the author's intended text, and am I imagined ideal, then the publishers of printed archives are of little use. They may provide evidence that a certain text once existed, some idea of its length, the fact that it was revised, but if we wish to recover the text of the work itself, the actual copies of books that carry a version of the text are of far more use. This was, after all, the great lesson that Bowers and his school of analytical bibliography and critical editing brought home with such success. But if our interest is in a work's publication history, as mine was in The Tent of the Beach, then those archives are infinitely more useful than all the copies in the world which will always, it seems, prove insufficient to recover the information that is readily reported in the archives. Of course, the question of the value of bibliographical evidence, whether to consider it as primary or secondary, only becomes important if the total evidence is incomplete, as it always is, and the available evidence seems to lead to contradictory conclusions. It's a failure on our part. In such a case, it becomes necessary for the bibliographer to interpret the available evidence and to decide what to privilege. Usually, of course, there is no conflict. All evidence will be helpful, to use Bowers' word, and some evidence will prove to be more helpful than others, depending on what question one is pursuing. The point, I think, is that any conclusion that is reached involves an act of interpretation, involves an evaluation of all available evidence. And in making this evaluation, it would be wise to be sure to understand consciously just what assumptions that we bring to our work, as I tried to do with Ted on the Beach. It would be foolish to decide ahead of time that one kind of evidence, that's present in physical books, for example, is necessarily of first importance. Books, too, can be duplicitous, you know. But that was then, this is now. Over the past decades, a new discipline called history of the book has come to the fore. Scholars are increasingly asking a different set of questions. Not, what exactly did the author intend to write? Rather, what meaning did readers take from the text? And how did the text impact those readers' society and culture? And with new questions, necessarily the status of surviving evidence changes. Books continue to be important, of course, but Bowers' collateral evidence may be of even more importance. Today's world is different in another important way. We now find ourselves in a world of computers and the internet. You know, I can check my email for a break. More and more, the texts that we read and use in our work are available to us in electronic form. One can, for example, find the text of Tent on the Beach online in multiple versions, if you care to. 
including from the Making of America site at the University of Michigan, a facsimile of this very 1867 edition. Though I, have, I did check the end, it's not in the first printing. <laughs> How we conduct our research has changed accordingly. For I think that we are all benefiting from the advantages this fact brings with it, not only from increased access to text, but also from the ease with which we can search and manipulate those electronic texts. It's a brave new world. This state of affairs inspired Kevin Kelly of Wired Magazine in a manifesto that was published in the New York Times Sunday Magazine last month to predict the future. Inspired by the Google Books initiative to scan and distribute the contents of five major research libraries, he imagines a world where the actual copies of physical books become vestigial, if not superfluous. Once copyright issues have been worked out, he claims, quote, copies of isolated books bound between inert covers soon won't mean much. What he calls the hegemony of the copy by which I take it he means the physical book, will soon be over. Because of the easy multiplication of an electronic text, he argues, a digitization of a single copy will suffice, making the continued preservation of multiple copies of physical books no longer necessary. It's a brave new world indeed. I do not think that this is an audience that finds itself in complete sympathy with such a vision of the future. Of course, we will all benefit as more and more texts become available in electronic form. I'd love to have Harvard's library on my laptop. But something may be lost as well. For each individual copy of a physical book is a witness of the past, and it carries evidence to the facts of its production and use. I think of the penciled marks left on the inner margin of the final leaf by met an anonymous woman who worked as a sewer in a 19th century Boston bindery. Are these destined to disappear as books are scanned and turned into electronic texts? And what about all those inscriptions, notes, and scribblings left behind by each copy's owners over time? These are evidence of how these texts and books were made, read, and used. Evidence that is crucial to the very questions that the history of the book has made important. Do not be satisfied with one copy of your book, I tell my students. Be sure to examine as many copies as you can, I say. The result will not be one of diminishing returns but rather one that raises further important questions. Again, I doubt that you're an audience that needs convincing of this fact. The benefits of the multiple copies of Shakespeare's first folio at the Folger and of Joyce's Ulysses at the Harry Ransom Humanities Research Center are clearly proven by the work of Charles Hume and perhaps less successfully, Hans Gobbler. These are, of course, important literary masterpieces ones of which few would question the value or importance of preserving as many copies as we can. But I trust that my own use of the multiple copies of Tech on the Beach can also be justified. Not that I believe that we must preserve all copies of all books for posterity for the evidence that they contain. 
that extreme is, I think, just as unreasonable, if not scary, as the future that Kevin Keller envisions. I understand the impelling logic of that position. For after all, who can foresee just what questions and what evidence will prove of interest to future scholars? But it's a position that I find untenable, both practically and theoretically. We would drown in print, and a society is characterized, indeed defined by, what it chooses to save and treasure and what it chooses to throw out. What is needed instead is a clear understanding of the costs and benefits of preserving books, those historical artifacts that Rare Book School celebrates and studies, and a cogent justification of those costs based on the uses to which they can be put. To conclude, let me return to the 100 or 102, whatever it is now, copies of Tent on the Beach here at Rare Book School. As I have explained, I proceeded with my thought experiment on bibliographical evidence for several years, but in the end, I abandoned it, like Thoreau in his cabin. I had learned as much as I had hoped to learn. Life was short, and there were other questions that interested me. But in the meanwhile, I found another use for my multiple copies of Tent on the Beach. At the time, I was regularly teaching summer seminars at the American Antiquarian Society and at Rare Book School back when it was located in New York City at Columbia, and discovered that it was, a useful, it was very useful in teaching collation to have each student able to follow along with a copy of their own. Uh, the fact that there were variations between copies was a bonus. Each summer, I would pack up my copies and lug them by Amtrak from Boston to New York, for one year, exhausted at the end of my week of teaching, I decided to abandon them and presented them to Terry for his collection. <laughs> I suspect that at first he was dubious about the value of so many copies of what was admittedly a minor book. But he caught on. And now, thanks to Vince Golden, there are 100. I admit, too, that at first I was also dubious about this multiplication of copies after all, 20 or so were plenty for my teaching needs. But then again, I did not foresee that I'd be delivering this lecture here tonight. Together, got, how far you got reading it yet? Together, <laughs> we have found you, yet another use for multiple copies of Tent on the Beach. And I trust you've learned from and perhaps you've enjoyed it. Thank you.